Welcome to a special mini-season of Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm June Thomas, Senior Managing Producer of Slate Podcasts and co-host of The Waves, Slate's show about feminism and gender. This episode is one of five, and they're all available in your feed right now, about second actors, that is, people who have made a dramatic career pivot at some point in their working lives. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Adrian Fuberman, who went from being a writer and advocate to being a physician and advocate. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Please tell me who you are and how your job situation changed over the course of your work life. My name is Adrienne Fu Berman, and I'm currently a professor in the Department of Pharmacology and Physiology and also the Department of Medicine at Georgetown University Medical Center. And I direct a project called Farmed Out that does research and education on how the pharmaceutical industry manipulates prescribing practices. And I guess I'm not sure about really sort of changing careers over time. I'm not really sure I've had a career, really. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I've certainly changed fields over time. I should mention, Adrian, to our listeners that you and I knew each other in the 1980s. In fact, we were on a collective together for the Feminist magazine Off Our Backs. So I think of you and your first career being as a writer. Is that how you saw yourself? Uh, Yes, I guess I always saw myself as a writer. And um, certainly our Off Our Backs experience was very important. That was such a wonderful collective experience with you as office manager, June, (laughs) um, handing down edicts, including that we could not wear clothes that were more than 10 years old to the office, as I recall. That's Um, because I was very young at the time. Now, I think everything I'm wearing is very old. But uh, (laughs) Ah, youth. And as I recall, you also had worked, your family uh, had a restaurant, as I recall. You also worked there, right? Yes, we had the first northern Chinese restaurant in Washington, D.C. So I worked there from when I was 13 years old, I think, helping out with the family business. How do you think that experience shaped your work life? Uh, That's an interesting question because I was thinking of how I used some of that restaurant experience. And one of the ways I've used that restaurant experience is, I mean, I had various roles there, including working in the laundry, working in the cloakroom, restaurant hostessing later as I got older, bartending. But I do some expert witness work now at the request of plaintiffs in litigation regarding pharmaceutical marketing practices. So 
um, occasionally have to be deposed or uh, go to trial. And I find myself channeling being a restaurant hostess. When people are being mean to you, you just have to smile and be nice. And, and I'm really very consciously channeling restaurant hostess when I'm in these very adversarial positions. <laughs> wow. So we're talking about your being a second actor because you did indeed go to medical school. You are now a physician, but you didn't go at the kind of normal, if I can use a ridiculous word, time. That was not the path that you were originally on when you were an undergraduate, right? No, not at all. My first, uh, my college degree was in literature and environmental studies. And I actually had to go back and do a biology degree when I decided to go to medical school. And I really did that because I had been working in a reproductive health clinic that did abortions. And we sometimes had uh, uh, women come in who were a few weeks beyond the first trimester and needed to have an early second trimester abortion. And I would have to beg the doctors there to do this in their offices because we couldn't do this in the clinic. And I would offer to to assist, which was one of our jobs um, as, as counselors. And at some point, I decided rather insanely that it would make more sense for me to go to medical school and become a doctor to provide health care rather than to try and persuade doctors to provide health care to patients. So that's what I did. I didn't know very much about medical school when I, I went there. I, I thought medicine and public health were friends. I didn't realize <laughs> that they were really quite antagonistic to each other. And really, I have moved more towards public health work uh, in terms of what I've done with my, my medical degree. So how old were you when you decided to go to medical school? 25 or 26. I ah. think I started medical school when I was about 27. So yes, that's considered sort of ancient when you go to <laughs> medical school. Most medical students, you know, say they wanted to be a doctor since they were a fetus. Um, but, uh, and I was actually treated with some suspicion when I was applying to medical school because it's, it clearly was not something that I had always planned to do. And in a way, they were right to be suspicious. Um, mm -hmm. I was an activist within medical school and outside of medical school and all with the aim of making things better for either medical students or residents or for patients, um, but uh, not necessarily the go along and get along type. <laughs> Indeed not. So, you know, the way you're talking, it's almost as if, you know, it. you clearly had a a very clear reason and intention that drove you to do this. But did you kind of know what you were getting into when you not only applied to medical school, but got in, went through all the preparation that you had to do? I believe you had to get a whole nother degree in order to get the science or requirements down that you needed. Did you know what you were getting into? No, not at all. Like like I wanted to go into OBGYN, but I didn't know it involved surgery, <laughs> so, which I knew I didn't want to do, but uh, I didn't know much about uh, medicine at all. I also thought it was, I thought it was allied with public health. I also thought it was much more closely allied to science than uh, than it actually is. The first couple of years, you're learning science. But then after that, in the clinical years, you're really learning a combination of tradition, myth, and ritual. And I, I was sort of disappointed in the evidence base or the lack of evidence mm. base behind some of the interventions I was learning about and seeing. Um, but that experience really 
informed my work as a a public health advocate. We will definitely get to your advocacy. I have a very strong memory of working with you as you were going through medical school. And I remember you writing just these excoriating pieces about, you know, the horrible experience you were having, not so much at what medical school required of you, but at the way that medical students were treated, especially as a woman, especially as a person of color, that there was seemed to be a very narrow kind of band of people who were, for whom medical school was set up and you didn't belong in that band. Would that be an accurate recollection for you of how your time was in medical school? Yes. One of my strongest memories was uh, being at the bedside of a patient, and there was always a crowd of med students at the bedside, and the taller, larger men would usually shove in front. And so this time I had, by force of will and some (laughs) shoving, actually made it to the side of the patient so that if the physician actually demonstrated a palpation technique, um, I would be the one to actually be, be the person who was being taught the technique. And the physician turned to his right where I was eagerly waiting my chance to uh, palpate this patient. And he looked at me sort of blankly. And then he looked to the left where my friend Kenny, an African-American male was. And then he reached behind him and pulled a tall white male (laughs) forward and showed him the technique. (laughs) And I, I just thought, we just didn't look like medical students to him, I guess. <laughs> the Chinese-American woman, the African-American male, nah, let's go get the white guy. <laughs> One of the things that's become clear as I've spoken with people about making job changes is what was the hardest thing? I and mean, in many cases, whether it's actually intellectually or emotionally the hardest thing, paying for the change can be just the most urgent thing that they need to take care of. Going to medical school is expensive. Was that the biggest pain point? Was paying for your medical education the hardest part of that experience? No, it was was realizing that patients did not always come first in medicine. Mm. Um, Certainly paying for it was also (laughs) a major pain point. Um, That took many years to pay off, yes. Despite speaking up about the negative aspects of your experience while you were going through it, you did indeed graduate. You mentioned earlier that you had thought of a future in OBGYN and realized as you were in training that that wasn't going to work out. When you left medical school, did you feel like you were on the path that you, you were now on a path and you knew what that path was going to be? No, I wasn't really sure at at first. Um, I really loved the idea of family medicine, and um, I did a residency program in the Bronx, the Montefiore residency program in social medicine, which was a really great program. Uh, But that also made me see that I didn't really love clinical medicine. And I left residency and actually I did a number of things, but including organizing interns and residents in the Committee of Interns and Residents, which was a union, Um, and then later going to work in several alternative medicine um, clinics. So I was the medical director of a couple of alternative medicine clinics in in town. And when the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, established 
an office of alternative medicine, something they didn't really want to do, but was <laughs> inflicted on them by Congress. I went to that office and said, oh, I've been practicing alternative medicine. I'm a conventionally trained physician. Um, I've learned a lot about this. You need to hire me. Um, and eventually, for some odd reason, that actually worked. <laughs> <laughs> so, How long did you spend there? Oh, I don't remember. It was at least a year. I was, okay. uh, uh, yeah. And so that was back when the Office of Alternative Medicine was, uh, the budget was less than the rounding error on the NIH <laughs> budget. It's now a, a whole center, the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health, I think it's called. It's changed names a few times. And from there, I went actually went back to working in women's health, also at NIH and the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, which bizarrely housed the contraception <laughs> branch, but I worked in contraceptive development and contraceptive evaluation uh, for a number of years. And then went into, um, I, I was editor of a complementary and alternative medicine newsletter that was for physicians and gave them continuing medical education credit. So I was doing freelance writing and editing mm -hmm. and then started an academic career. So as you can see, this it, none of this was really planned. I just <laughs> quit jobs I didn't like and <laughs> took on other things. <laughs> well, one of the things that strikes me, and I know from other people who I know who have moved from journalism to medicine, that there are in many fields, like journalism, it's not so much about a credential. If you have talent, if you have story ideas, if you honestly, if you have connections, then you can have a career. But medicine it's a credential. You cannot, you know, you cannot operate without a license and with all of those things. That credential clearly has been important uh, in your post-medical school career. I don't know what quite my question is like, does that seem right to you? <laughs> Having an MD gives you an incredible amount of, of undeserved cultural authority. <laughs> Uh, people believe you more on any subject. I mean, they believe your opinions on the weather more if you <laughs> have a medical degree. And is that fair? No. And it was interesting coming from being a women's health advocate who uh, I did a lot of work with the National Women's Health Network, for example. I testified to the FDA when um, I was just, you know, in my early 20s and mm -hmm. didn't have any degree beyond a bachelor's degree. I knew a lot about some areas of women's health before I became a physician. But suddenly after I became a physician, I'm considered an expert on many things <laughs> when there were things that I knew more about when I was able to concentrate on them more as, as a women's health advocate who didn't have an advanced degree. Mm. So that was very interesting to experience. But I hope that I've been able to use the cultural authority that's conferred on me by this degree for good. <laughs> when you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Okay, so let's talk about what it is that you do now. Tell me, um, I know you mentioned earlier the particular lines of work that you're in, but could you just tell me like how a typical day of such a thing exists? What does that look like? What does, what's a typical work day for Dr. Adrian Fuberman? And no, we kind of joke around my office that if we ever plan out a day, that's a sure recipe for having it be completely wrecked. <laughs> um, so I do a lot of 
different things at Georgetown. So I teach in various uh, courses. I teach about medicinal plants and pharmacognosy, which is the pharmacology of natural products. I teach things on evidence-based medicine and I teach an advocacy course, and I, I, I teach in different fields there. I run this project called Farmed Out that does research and education on how the pharmaceutical and medical device industry manipulate prescribing practices. I do research. I co-direct a graduate program called Health in the Public Interest, which is the first program of its kind in the country, but we're actually trying to, it's an interdisciplinary program. So we're training students in social sciences and also epidemiologic concepts, um, mm-hmm. some some quantitative and qualitative methodology. But we're actually, our aim is to train students to be effective advocates for a better healthcare system in this country. Mm. So it's a it's a master's program. We've just uh we'll graduate our first cohort this May. Um wow. and so yeah, that that's an interesting project. I also maintain gardens at Georgetown that that uh, show off ecologic gardening techniques. We have medicinal herb gardens and other kinds of gardens. Tell me a bit more about that. Because um, I'm almost like so do you have another career as a gardener? Um, I do. <laughs> so, how, you know, again, our view of Western medicine says when you're a physician, you are prescribing. Clearly, that's a, a, a big area for you. But how do you kind of incorporate herbs and uh, complementary medicine into, you know, someone who works at a medical school, someone who works at, you know, in the belly of the beast? How does that all work out? Well, I teach about evidence and and try to use the same standard for any interventions that we're talking about. So I want us to use the same standard in terms of efficacy and safety for for drugs, for herbs, for dietary supplements, and for non-pharmacologic interventions. That one of the problems with having a very medicine-focused, medicine and surgery-focused healthcare system is that there are therapies for which there actually are randomized controlled trials showing that they're very helpful. And yet healthcare providers and students are not taught about these therapies and they're not incorporated into our healthcare system. And the easiest one of those is really diet and exercise, which Mm. is very helpful for treating a lot of different healthcare conditions, but it's not something that we're we're taught very much about in medical school. It's not something that we are encouraged to teach students about, and yet it's very important. Are diet and exercise the kinds of things that you mean by non-pharmacologic interventions? Yes, absolutely. Things like diet, exercise, biofeedback, uh, manipulative therapies, chiropractic and uh, osteopathy, so spinal manipulative therapies, uh, massage, acupuncture, all of these are non-pharmacologic therapies. So pharmacologic therapies would be drugs, herbs, dietary supplements, things that have a pharmacologic effect on the body. Huh. So, but then growing herbs, how does that fit into it? You grow them so that, because so, cause then you know where they come from? No, I'm an obsessive gardener. I am really, uh, <laughs> I'm a gardener with no land. I live in a condo high above the ground in in D.C. Uh, well, we have a height restriction on buildings, so it's not that far above the ground, but there's no land. Mm-hmm. So I've always sort of a- adopted gardens of friends. I have a rule, which is they have no say. I will not adopt a garden unless I have complete and utter control and nobody better get, make any suggestions to me. And I plant ecologically friendly gardens that attract pollinators and that attract birds and that are organic gardens that 
are low maintenance, which is very important since some of the gardens that I take care of, I'm only taking care of a couple of times a year. So um, it was really great to be able to get some gardens at Georgetown that I can demonstrate some of these techniques and introduce my students and other people's students to growing things. Most of our students are city kids. They've never um, interacted with uh, green space. They've never, they don't know the difference between one plant and another. And so being, I don't just grow medicinal herbs. I also grow culinary herbs and fruits and um, plants that smell like popcorn and uh, (laughs) um, various things. And it's been interesting. The gardens that I have are used not only in some classes and not only by students who are just like lying among the flowers or, or, or looking at things, but they're also the nurses bring down patients from the hospital next door to see the gardens as well. So that's oh. been really nice. Wow. When I first contacted you about coming onto this show, because in my mind, you're a second actor, you said, I don't know if that's really true. I went from one kind of advocacy to another kind. That surprised me. Uh, but Tell me why that's how you see your career path or one version of your career path. Well, it's always driven me a bit crazy when people want to talk about different problems that there are in the world, but they're not actually doing anything about them. I always (laughs) wanted to do something about them. And what working at, I think, uh, well, working at Offer Backs and other experiences that I've had as a writer, and especially after becoming a physician, writing is the most important thing. Writing is a really important way of changing the world. When we started Farmed Out, my plan was, well, I'm going to write some medical journal articles. And then after that, I'm going to write articles that are aimed at consumers. And I never really had to do the latter because we wrote medical journal articles that were then picked up Mm. by by media. And there would be a whole lot of articles that were written that I didn't have to write. It was really great. (laughs) (laughs) So then I could just focus on doing more research and generating more articles about all the nefarious ways in which pharmaceutical companies are uh, manipulating physicians without their being aware of it. But writing both, you know, what is written about us, but our our own writing has been so important that it, it gives people something to discuss. It it can be used by politicians and regulators and legislators and lawyers um, as it can be used in education. <laughs> writing, it really is true about the pen being mightier than the sword. And that's um, it's too bad that many of the people who are trained in science and many physicians are not exactly functionally illiterate, but they are not the most beautiful writers and mm. they, they don't necessarily think writing is important, but it's the most important thing. Well, of course, I'm nodding very hard. Uh, also, <laughs> podcasting is very important too, of course. Um <laughs> What's your favorite part of your job these days? Oh, gardening. (laughs) And I really love having interns with Farmed Out. They are really wonderful. I just have the most fabulous staff and the most fabulous volunteers and interns. And they're just so dedicated Mm -hmm. to fighting corporate greed and um, to getting the word out about um, these nefarious pharmaceutical medical device marketing practices. And we've done some really fabulous novel research in this area. So I love interacting with my, my interns and with my students and with young people. I really hope that they will carry this forward, that uh, training people to be effective advocates feels like really important work. 
Is there anything that you kind of did in earlier parts of your work life that you, it sounds like a lot of them you are still doing, you are still writing, you are still organizing, you are still advocating, but are there things that you haven't had the opportunity to do in the last few years that you miss? In terms of work life, no, not particularly. I would like to have more free time. (laughs) (laughs) We all. (laughs) Right. And uh, yeah, that doesn't seem to be happening. But I feel very lucky to love my work. And I've actually always loved my work. And when I've stopped loving my work, I go and do something else. But um, I've never dreaded going to work in the morning. And I think that that's really important. I remember a friend of mine saying how she hated her job, but that she only had 16 more years to go <laughs> until retirement. <laughs> and God. I thought that was just the saddest statement. Like it, Nobody should be looking forward to 16 years of hating their job. Like leave immediately, do something you love. Work is most of your waking part of the day, Mm -hmm. like do something you love. And I do. I don't mind the fact that I go home at night and um, often put in the equivalent of another work day um, after dinner. But it's the work's really interesting and fun. Adrian Fuberman, thank you so much for coming in to talk to us. Sure. That's it for this special bonus episode of Working, but don't worry, there are four more episodes about second actors available for you to listen to right now. And you can write to me if you have any thoughts about this episode at working at slate.com. A special thank you to Justin D. Wright for the ad music. Our producer is Jessamine Molly. Thank you for listening.